The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan on News Talk. A little bit earlier in the show, we were talking. Uh, about Sinead O'Connor, as you would imagine. And we heard from Dave Fanning and BP Fallon. In just a moment, we're going to hear from some other people who knew Sinead, knew her well, worked with her uh, over the years. Uh, But first, I I want to play a little snippet from her memoir, Rememberings, because we've talked a little bit about that as well and how good the audio book is. So if you haven't read it, you should. And if you can, you should listen to it because Sinead narrates it herself. So it is her telling her own story. And it is a remarkable story. The other thing we've heard a lot about over the last couple of days is uh, her, or the last day, it feels like a couple of days, uh, the last day has been this appearance on Saturday Night Live, this great inflection point in her career. So here is a little bit uh, from her memoir wherein she describes her thinking behind that appearance and the ripping up of the Pope's picture. In 1978, Bob Geldof ripped up a photo of Olivia Newton-John and John Travolta on top of the Pops because their shit record summer nights had been number one for seven weeks and finally Geldof's Boomtown Rat single Rat Trap had taken over. My intention had always been to destroy my mother's photo of the Pope. It represented lies and liars and abuse. The type of people who kept these things were devils like my mother. I never knew when or where or how I would destroy it, but destroy it I would when the right moment came. And with that in mind, I carefully brought it everywhere I lived from that day forward, because nobody ever gave a shit about the children of Ireland. I've woken after going to bed at 6am. It's 1pm, only a few hours until camera rehearsal for SNL. I'm to perform two songs, the second of which is Bob Marley's War, a cappella. The lyric is actually a speech given to the United Nations by the Ethiopian Emperor Haile Selassie in New York in 1963 about racism being the cause of all wars. But I'm going to change a few lines to be a declaration of war against child abuse. So I've been thinking even more of destroying my mother's photo of JP2. And I decide tonight is the night. I bring the photo to the NBC studio and hide it in the dressing room. At the rehearsal, when I finish singing Bob Marley's War, I hold up a photo of a Brazilian street kid who was killed by cops. I ask the cameraman to zoom in on the photo during the actual show. I don't tell him what I have in mind for later on. Everyone's happy. A dead child far away is no one's problem. I know if I do this there'll be war, but I don't care. I know my scripture. Nothing can touch me. I reject the world. Nobody can do a thing to me that hasn't been done already. I can sing in the streets like I used to. It's not like anyone will tear my throat out. Showtime. I'm wearing a white lace dress that once belonged to Shade. I bought it at a rock and roll auction in London when I was 19. Paid £800 for it. It's beautiful. There's a coin-sized lead weight in each side of the slit at the back to keep it straight and make it hang ladylike. Very clever. A dress for women to behave badly in. One day maybe I will have a daughter who gets married in it. So the show goes on. First song, success has made a failure of our home, is a dream. Plenty of people milling about backstage afterwards, 
producers, managers, makeup artists and fellow guests. I'm the flavour of the month. Everyone wants to talk to me, tell me how I'm a good girl, but I know I'm an imposter. Second song is set up beautifully, with one candle beside me and my Rasta prayer cloth tied to the microphone, I sing war a cappella. No one suspects a thing, but at the end, I don't hold up the child's picture. I hold up JP2's photo and then rip it into pieces. I yell, fight a real enemy. I'm talking to those who are going to kill Terry, and I blow out the candle. Total stunned silence in the audience. And when I walk backstage, literally not a human being is in sight. All doors have closed. Everyone has vanished, including my own manager, who locks himself in his room for three days and unplugs his phone. Everyone wants a pop star, see. But I'm a protest singer. I just had stuff to get off my chest. I had no desire for fame. In fact, that's why I chose the first song. Success was making a failure of my life because everybody was already calling me crazy for not acting like a pop star, for not worshipping fame. And I understand I've torn up the dreams of those around me, but those aren't my dreams. No one ever asked me what my dreams were. They just got mad at me for not being who they wanted me to be. Yeah, that was Sinead O'Connor narrating her own memoir, Rememberings, that came out a couple of years ago, uh, describing... At that moment, she went on Saturday Night Live and ripped up that picture, as I said, that great inflection point uh, in her career. That's not necessarily how how she saw it. She had a great response when she was asked whether it ruined her career. She said, no, it ruined the careers of record company executives who wanted to buy houses in Antigua on the back of her sales. But she continued uh, to make money from music, from performing live, and that is what she always wanted to do. Uh, Like I said earlier, if, if you haven't read it, you should do so. And if you can, listen to it, because it's amazing listening to her tell her own story and her voice. Um, uh, The Lion and the Cobra, her debut album, that got mentioned as well earlier by BP Fallon and by Dave Fanning. Uh, Spike Hollyfield was the bass guitarist on that debut album and he's with me now. Spike, you're welcome to the show. Can you tell me a little bit about the Sinead that you knew? Ah, the Sinead that I knew. Ah, well, first of all, thanks for having me on. Um, The Sinead that I knew was just a young, innocent talented songwriter you know when we worked together on the line in the cobra we spent a lot of time in oxfordshire with john and myself just like teenagers writing having great fun you know um and it was probably one of the most influential moments of my life without me realizing it at the time but, uh, yeah, it was just fantastic. Mm. Absolutely incredible person. But why do you say that now, that it was probably one of the most influential moments for you? Well, for me, because um, I think this the whole group at the time that uh, were involved in The Lion and the Cobra, uh, John, Mike, Rob, myself, um, you know, everybody that was involved, uh, Rick was helping out with some percussion. We, it was just like a nice, fun, no pressure situation. We kind of had no worries. We, we enjoyed each other's company and there was no pressure. I think when Sinead obviously became successful, I wasn't around for those days uh, much because we were just involved in the first album. But, you know, from those days on, 
she had a lot to deal with, you know, and I'm glad that the time I spent with her was a fun time, good memories. Yeah, was there evidence then, even looking back, maybe it, it, it makes more sense, of those demons, or, or did she seem very much in command of them during that period? She was 100% in command of them when, when I worked with her. I mean, you know, these demons didn't really... They weren't the forefront of her character. They were hidden in her music, you know. I mean, even at the time for me, it was just a case of us getting together and writing. Sometimes I didn't really take notice too much about what she was singing about until later on, you know, and then you realize, wow. Um, mm. Yeah, it's just, yeah. And She didn't have those demons. I, th- I think the industry created the demons for her, to be honest with you. Mm. Yeah, you certainly get a sense of of that as well when you read her book. Um, I mean, how 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 much she kind of swam against the the the, the prevailing current of the industry, or or what industry yeah. executives wanted to be the prevailing current. But did you did you get a sense, Spike, of uh, of that talent that she had during that recording? Oh, oh my God, yes, yes. I mean, I, I was. You know, we would come up with ideas, say me and John would be in the studio, we'd come up with some ideas and Sinead would be sitting listening and she'd literally go out the room for 10 minutes and come back with these amazing lyrics, whack this vocal down and me and John would just sit there and look at each other and go, wow, just wow. You know, incredible. Such Such a voice, you know, I mean, I've... I think I heard Jar Wobble say something uh, today about her breaking up a capsule, uh, breaking a capsule on the microphone. Well, that must be the second time that's happened because I can remember when we started recording the line in the Cobra uh, while we were warming up and getting monitor sounds, uh, headphone mixes, etc. She was singing and she blew up a very expensive vintage microphone that day as well. <laughs> wow, okay. <laughs> just, so, just an amazing voice. She had form in, in that regard. Uh, Billy McGuinness is with us as well uh, from Aslan. Uh, Billy, um, isn't it, it is good to talk to you again, though. Uh, again, sorry about the circumstances. We were only talking about uh, Christy um, a, a couple of weeks ago. Um, when did you meet Sinead? Uh, well, Aslan Forster came, came across Sinead in 2001. Uh, we were in Westland Studios, which is just off Pierce Street in Dublin, and we were recording an album called Waiting for This Madness to End. And we had a song, and we wanted Christy to do a duet with someone. And the suggestion came up of asking Sinead O'Connor. And we, we thought she was going to turn it down, and you know, we said we'd, we'd never get Sinead. Lo and behold, she said, yeah, and we told her what day to come in. And she came in, no entourage with her. She was on her own. She came in, she said, right, what would you like me to do? And we says, well, we're doing this song called Open Arms. And it's, we're going for a Peter Gabriel, Kate Bush kind of vibe on Don't Give Up. So she said, okay, what do you want me to do? So we said, well, if you can do this, this and this. So she went in and she done that. But then she said, are you happy with that? And we said, yeah. She says, can I go in and freestyle? And she went in and she done her own thing on it. And the producer, Ian Grimble, who had just finished working at Manic Street Preachers, you could just see the excitement of, oh, he was getting really, really, he was going, I've never heard vocals like this. Mm. So Sinead came out and the song was, song is brilliant if you get a chance to listen to it. But then she hung around and she said, um, 
do you want me to do Aunt Nelson? And we says, well, we have this bit of a pop song called She's So Beautiful. Do you want to go in and do something like that? She <laughs> said, I'd love to. So in she went. So we got two songs over. But what? But the, what, the thing that, that hit me was her kindness. Because at the end of it, at the end of the session, right, we, we said, look, Sinead, we have to pay it. You know, we have to give you something. You know, you have to spend the whole day in here with us. Yeah. Uh, we would pay it. And she said, look, she says, I, I don't want any. She says, how much are you going to give me? And we said, well, you know, what about this? And she went, do you know what you can do? She said, um, I'd love you to give that to a homeless charity anonymously. And that was it. And that was that yeah. was it was just fantastic, and it was it was it was her always thinking of the underdog. The last time we met her was a couple of years ago in Gerald Keane's house. Uh, Gerald runs a, a charity every year out in Drayton Manor in Wicklow, and Sinead was on, and Aslam were on, and it was the last time I seen her. Herself and Christy went off to a room, and they were laughing and joking and having the crack, and it's hard to believe. Seven weeks ago, we lost Christy. And then yesterday we're at the losing Sinead and it's just, she was such to me, as well as like everyone's talking about the voice and everything else, but I'll just remember her kindness mm. for the underdog. You know, she was really, she really yeah. cared about people. She did. Well, isn't that, it's a, it's a lovely eulogy, Billy, and a lovely way to remember her. So thanks a million for speaking to us. Billy McGuinness from Aslan uh, and Spike Hollyfield, uh, the guitarist, bass guitarist and bass guitarist on that debut album, The Lion and the Cobra. Thank you both. Uh, for joining me here on the show. The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan. Weekdays from 4 on News Talk.